0: You are listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support from the Society for Freshwater Science, Arizona State University's School of Life Sciences, University of Washington's School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences, and Cornell University's Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. Welcome to Making Waves. I'm your podcast host, Erin Larson, and with me today is Ariel Shogren. Ariel is a Ph.D. candidate at Notre, the University of Notre Dame, um, where she studies eDNA. So welcome to the podcast, Ariel. Hi. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, I was wondering if you could start out by telling us a little bit about your research and what makes you so excited about it. Sure.
1: Um, so I'm really interested by streams and rivers' ability to move materials um, through a landscape, and also by the role of biology in adding a lot of complexity to ecological predictions. So the overarching theme of my current dissertation is to understand the fate and transport of these kind of novel materials uh, throughout the environment, and how environmental heterogeneity influences how those materials move throughout aquatic systems. Um, so it's really an exciting time to be in this field because uh, a lot of what I do is very interdisciplinary. Um, so I work with, you know, physicists, geneticists, hydrologists, I'm, I'm not, you know, stuck in this kind of ecology box. And so there are these intersections that are really productive and useful that I've been really lucky to, to work within.
0: Awesome. That's super cool. Um, so one thing I wanted to start out asking you a little bit about, because even as an ecologist, I feel like I don't know much, as much about it as I would like to, is what exactly eDNA or environmental DNA is and where it comes from, because that's a large focus of your work, is studying how environmental DNA moves through streams. And so I was wondering if you could give us the easy-to-understand-for-anyone version of what environmental DNA is and where, it, where we get it from.
1: Sure. So this technique was developed uh, a couple years ago at Notre Dame to combat the spread of invasive fish species, and really the idea behind it is to treat the river like a crime scene, right? So we all leave our own genetic cloud of ourselves and our environment with our skin cell, our hair, our sweat, et cetera, and aquatic animals do the same thing when they're swimming around in the water column. They're just existing in their environment, exuding this genetic cloud of themselves, so, eDNA really is that mixture of secreted cells, feces, mucus, all these tissues that contain genetic material that's found in the environment. Um, and really, it's just like fingerprinting that you see it's on CSI or on crime shows, but it's used in an
0: environmental context. Awesome. That's super interesting. And what are, it seems like, just like when you watch a crime show or um, I'm not a forensic scientist, but if you were a forensic scientist, I know there's a lot of issues that can come up with doing that type of genetic work. And so what are the things that are challenging with working with something like environmental DNA, especially in streams?
1: Right. So eDNA as a technique is still rather young, right? Like we don't have a good idea of sometimes how the fate of, of that DNA, the source of that DNA, the age of that DNA. So. In order to figure out the ways to optimize its use, we still have a lot to constrain. Um, genetic techniques have only really been on the market and affordable for ecologists for the last 10 years or so. So a lot of this is just really new. So that's that's the biggest um, kind of issue with eDNA, I think.
0: Are there some animals too that um, secrete, I guess, more eDNA than others? Like, is it hard to figure out? Um, Because I know sometimes people use it to estimate, like, potentially a population size of a rare species, but do you have to know something about how often they're, like, losing their skin cells or pooping or (laughs) secreting other types of uh, material that then creates eDNA?
1: Yeah, so that's definitely one of those complications of, um, you know, a fish might exude mucus or if it's spawning, it might exude those eggs, that's genetic material. And so the timing of, of DNA release can be really important, um, and also, yeah, those behavioral dynamics or those dynamics of when they're actually ex- exuding that DNA. And a lot of that still is, is very unknown, especially in stream ecosystems, and it's definitely an important variable for understanding how to back-calculate those um, species abundances.
0: Right. What's the Have you found any crazy, unexpected animals in streams when you've been doing eDNA? Things where you're like, oh, a cow must have walked through here, or <laughs> DNA that you weren't expecting to find?
1: That's a really good point. So there are kind of two ways of looking at eDNA, right? So there's the one, first approach, that's the metagenomics approach that's looking at the entire community analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's one way that people can look at the entire community of a stream or river But what I've done in my research is doing target specific eDNA. So that's looking at um, is a common carp there or not, is a bluegill or not, and anything else doesn't doesn't get detected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, separating those two things out can be really important. And I think that's also why eDNA can be kind of confusing for ecologists because there is that distinguishing technique base, I guess.
0: Yeah, so you're trying to decide, depending on your question, if you're going to sequence just everything versus really try and target something that you're interested in. Because I know maybe we could talk a little bit about um, how stream ecologists and managers often use eDNA, because I know for things like invasive species, it's been a really up and coming thing. So yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about... We've talked about the things that sometimes make it confusing, but we can talk about the benefits of it as well. (laughs)
1: Sure, yeah. So one significant application of that eDNA approach is the early detection of invasive species so that managers can prevent further spread um, and mitigate those damages. And the reason that it's so useful is that to go out and actually net a species, net a fish, or have to electroshock a fish, takes a lot of money and a lot of manpower, especially if those species are elusive or low in density. It can take a lot of effort to just find one. It can take uh, quite a bit of effort in order to go and actually confirm that, yes, the species is there. No, it's not. In contrast, taking a water sample and being able to identify the genetic material is just a its a lot easier, quite frankly, and it's it can be cheaper than in, investing in that much manpower. So it's really useful in order to monitor and also detect those invasive species at low density and it can also be a proactive assessment tool for endangered species as well it's not just for
0: invasive yeah so anything that where you either don't want to harm the thing that you might be sampling or the thing might be rare or you're trying to figure out um if something's kind of arrived yet that you wouldn't necessarily be able to detect by normally sampling methods right exactly that's super cool um, so I wanted to get a little bit into your research more specifically, because I know you have a re- you have a couple papers out about modeling how eDNA actually moves through streams and all the complications associated with that. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that work and how you've dealt with part of the f- helping to fix some of the things that make eDNA challenging to work with in streams. Sure.
1: So um, in flowing waters we really lack a kind of a quantitative framework that describe how eDNA moves in in systems. And what we really want to know is where, when, and how many individuals existed in this flowing system. Like that's the main premise of that question. And we know just from previous studies that eDNA is transported. So it is actually suspended in the water column. So it does move throughout its system. Um, But what we were really trying to understand with This most recent scientific reports paper was how um, environmental context really changes how that eDNA moves and also get an estimate of kind of uh, those rates at which eDNA might be deposited on the stream bed and whether or not that um, eDNA being transported is kind of new or whether it's being resuspended off the stream bed. Because um, that could be considered old DNA, right? Like you could deposit on the stream bed and then be really suspended later and caught in a water sample. So distinguishing what a sample means when it's captured in a flowing water system was kind of the, the premise of that paper. Um, and so we, the other approach that we really wanted to take was, I mean, I'm trained as a stream ecologist, and, and that's uh, my bread and butter, but we also wanted to have this kind of uh, interdisciplinary approach, so I- involving a hydrologist and involving these uh, geneticists was kind of the Im- unique aspect, I think, of the project and what made it so
0: um, useful, I think. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell us a little bit about um, what you found in that paper? So what um, what surprised you about your results or what your results were in terms of how you can think about modeling um, how DNA moves in streams? Sure.
1: So basically we use, the key to this study is that we used a traditional stream ecology approach using traditional stream spiraling metrics, which is basically measuring the average distance that a particle would transport in flowing water, um, and it's never really been used for any kind of genetic material before. And so in using this technique, we were able to find that eDNA signal um, could become really low at relatively short distances, um, given our experimental conditions. So transport distances, so the average distance that one particle of eDNA would move downstream was really influenced by the structure and the size of that stream bed. Mm -hmm. So whether or not the the stream bed surface was made up of pea gravel, so really, really tiny little rocks, or bigger cobbles, um, really controlled how that eDNA was moving throughout our experimental system and if you think about that the fact that a, a molecule of eDNA might move twice as far in a, in a given system that would really change how you interpret a positive eDNA result like if you're actually looking at an entire uh, watershed or even a, an entire river reach.
0: Yeah if you're sampling and trying to establish where things are or aren't if that water, is, if that DNA is being carried much farther in some systems than others, you might get super different maps of, like, where you think something is or isn't.
1: Right, yeah. exactly.
0: And I have a question about, so you were saying that sometimes, e, like, old eDNA can get trapped, like, in the stream bottom and then get re-released, basically, back up into the water column. And how long can eDNA actually survive in a way that you can then actually analyze it and detect something?
1: That's a really good question, and that is one of those black boxes of, that we don't know. So the really unique thing about eDNA is that it's this mixture of material, right? Mm-hmm. So it's free DNA that's just floating around in the system. It's cells. It's It could be even the organisms themselves if they're small enough. And so the rate at which eDNA degrades or persists, like we don't actually know, but um, So that's a really good question. Yeah, I I could
0: imagine that, for example, like a decomposing salmon carcass might release eDNA for a lot longer potentially than just some mucus that sloughs off a fish, for example. Yeah. So you could detect that salmon for a long time that, you know, dead salmon that's just lying there on the stream bed versus a salmon that's just sort of sloughing some mucus off and that's sort of getting transported out.
1: Yeah, and some of the material may or may not be more labile than others versus recalcitrant, so that's another aspect of the kind of biogeochemistry of eDNA that we don't really know.
0: Yeah. Sounds like plenty of grounds for future research for you. <laughs> I, I hope so. Maybe. And so um, what I know it seems like there's such yeah, so much to study and still find out about eDNA, but if you weren't studying eDNA, what do you think you would have worked on? You mentioned that you were sort of a, a stream ecologist who's moved on to do a lot of interdisciplinary work has that made you interested in pursuing other types of research or do you sometimes miss I don't know more traditional stream ecology <laughs> research or yeah what else excites you in terms of research
1: um I mean I really enjoy working in this kind of applied sphere um, working on a problem that is, is useful to, to managers so I think Anything that has that kind of applied spin, it would be really interesting to me. I'm also just interested in how things move. Like basically, if it moves, like I'm <laughs> happy to study it. I've, I've been really lucky that our field site is so close to campus, and they've kind of allowed me to dump DNA and I've been able to dump microplastics and etc. So it's it, DNA isn't the the only thing that I'm kind of interested in how it moves.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so are you doing some microplastics research as well?
1: Yeah, I'm working with uh, John Kelly and Tim Holline at Loyola University in Chicago to kind of estimate microplastic deposition.
0: Awesome. And I'm sure there's a lot of, similarly to eDNA, some challenges with the way things can move and get resuspended in the water column as well. Yeah, yeah. I think like
1: that kind of challenge though of trying to understand how different materials move and the different conditions at which they may exist is part of why it's so interesting to me because it's just really hard to think about and there are all these different variables and that can be really fun. I mean it's it's also really frustrating but it's
0: <laughs> definitely definitely fun. Awesome. Um so speaking of fun, we want in making waves we're trying to move on to also talk more about scientists themselves and scientists as people. And so I'd love to know a little bit about what you enjoy doing when you're not doing your science. What do you like to do in your free time? (laughs) If you hopefully Uh, have, have free time (laughs) to do fun stuff. Yeah. I mean,
1: I think it's all about balance, right? So I really love anything that gets me outside. So like running canoeing, um, we're really close to Lake Michigan. So I go there a lot. Um, I recently got a new road bike, so I've been exploring with that and hiking, that type of thing. I'm also a huge animal lover, so I spend a lot of time with my dogs and with horses whenever I can.
0: Awesome. That all sounds great and I agree work-life balance is probably one of the most important lessons in grad school that we can learn.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a marathon,
0: not a sprint. Yeah. I tell myself that all the time, even though I think it's a marathon where there are moments where you feel like you're sprinting at least for a little bit (laughs) and then you walk. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Ariel. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, and we look forward to seeing where your research brings you next and, see what you learn about how everything moves through streams. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast, brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more info on this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please visit us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.